Thank you, music team. Those great songs this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you turn with me, please, to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, we're starting a whole new section of the book of John this morning that we will be in for a while. It's about a little over a year ago that we started, John, and we're not quite ready to land this plane, even though we are in John chapter 13, which is um, the last day he spent on this earth. So, John chapter 13. Before we read it and stand doing so, I invite you to uh, pray with me, and so let us turn to God and, uh, and pray together. Father, we recognize that you are the God who teaches us all truth. We seek to walk in that truth, for your loving kindness toward us is great. You have delivered our souls from the the depth of Sheol. You have rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Thank you for the, the favor that you have shown us in the beloved in Christ Jesus. And we sing of that loyal love, that loving kindness to you, O Lord, forever. To all generations, we want to make known your faithfulness with our mouths. For we have said loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. And so we pray that the loving kindness that we sing of would be passed on from generation to generation in Valley Bible Church that we would be faithful to do so. Teach us now, open our hearts, our minds to understanding your word in these things we pray in the name and for the sake of Christ our Savior. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. And so to give honor to the reading of God's word, which stands forever, I invite you to stand. And we are reading this morning, John chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. uh, The word of God, John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments. Taking a towel, he girded himself Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter, and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do now you do not realize, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken the garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. And God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. We begin this morning what is called the Upper Room Discourse. The Upper Room Discourse. The Upper Room Discourse is sometimes called the Farewell Discourse. 
But it is the upper room discourse because it is the time that Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room during the Passover, uh, partaking of the Passover meal, few hours long. Um, we don't know how many hours, but not very many hours. Um, all the material in John chapter 13 through 17, we need to get this up on the screen, please. All this material is, uh, is unique to John's gospel. Um, the material found here is only in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, do not have this story. This only occurs in John's Gospels in these five chapters. Think about it. Nearly one quarter of the book is John 13 through 17. The upper room discourse is nearly a quarter of the book, and yet it takes place in just a couple of hours, just a few hours. And in less than 24 hours, and some say between 15 and 18 hours, Jesus will be dead. So this is remarkable. We enter into this unique time that is an intimate time of Jesus with his disciples. It's warm and it's cozy. They're relaxing. They're laying down uh, at the table. They're eating this wonderful Passover meal. And he's talking to them as, as brothers and friends, those whom he loves. He understands that he is going away. They don't, they don't really understand the whole death part of it yet. But you can imagine from the standpoint of Jesus This is my last opportunity to talk to my disciples. And I'm going to say the things that I need to say to them that they will remember after I'm gone. Think of it for you. If you knew that you just had hours to live and you called your children and your loved ones in, what would you say? And that's what Jesus does. These are the words that he spoke to the closest of his friends. And they were the words that were most important to him. The focus is on his disciples. Um, Chapters 1 through 12 focused on the Jews. Um, In chapter 1, remember it says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And now he's turning to those who are really his own, those whom the Father has given to him. And he's going to focus on his disciples. And therefore, the teaching is essential not only for his disciples then, But the teachings of John 13 through 17 are essential to us as well. And the important themes of the Upper Room Discourse, and there are many, but just here are a few, love. And um, love as Jesus loved, what true love is in the Christian sense. And Jesus is going to demonstrate it. We'll talk about it this morning. He has a lot to say about what it means to love the Father and to love Him and to love one another. The role of the Holy Spirit. If we didn't have John 13 through 17, our pneumatology, which pneumatology is the theology of the Holy Spirit, our pneumatology would be lacking so much. In fact, the very reason that we have these um, these scriptures given to us, Jesus is going to tell us in 14, 15, and 16 that the, the Holy Spirit... Um, brought to mind all of these things for the apostles so that they would record these things for us. So the role of the Holy Spirit in salvation and in the scriptures is so very, very important. Obedience to Jesus' commands. Over and over again, he's going to talk about obedience. Obedience of love, obedience as as the Father, as he obeyed the Father. And we'll see this over and over again. He will talk about prayer, our own prayer, but also in John 17, Uh, The high priestly prayer, which is a model for us in which we learn a lot about prayer. We also will see in chapter 15 the whole idea of abiding in Christ. That idea of he is the vine and we are the branches, branches. It is a key idea in the Christian life and our walk with God. And then the unity of believers with one another and with God. And he's going to talk about this. Make them one as we are one. Because we are one with one another, and we are one with him, and and he is one with the Father. So my uh, first application of the introduction is this. Read John 13 through 17 this week. In one sitting. Five five chapters, but read it. And, you know, take some notes. Maybe underline. But note the themes. note Note the repetitions. And note the things that you see. Because it is uh, what happens in 13 through 17. It's just... The last time that he has with his disciples, it doesn't happen over a period of days. It is meant to be read in one sitting, and I encourage you to do that this week. So, this morning, 
we are going to see the washing of the disciples' feet. We saw that as we read the scriptures. And um, the washing of the disciples' feet is the, the first thing that, that he does. But it is much more than cleanliness. It's not just about dirty feet getting clean. There's a lot more to it than that. The washing of the, deci- the, the fa- disciples' feet, what does it mean? And what is the significance? The washing of the disciples' feet was an act of perfect love. An act of perfect love, an act of immeasurable love. It was an act of complete, infinite love. The, the eternal love that he will show to his disciples in the next few chapters and beyond, all that he's going to do is going to be an act of love, but this sets the stage. This is the first act of love that he demonstrates to them. It is an act of love. So, all that follows is a demonstration of that, verses 1 through 5. So, in verses 1 through 5, it says this, in verse 1, Now, before the feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's a mouthful. It is. That's, that's a lot right there. But notice what he says. We're giving, given further indication of what the hour means. We've seen that phrase. We've talked about it. I think this is about the eighth time that it talks about the hour for Jesus. The hour is coming. In chapter 12, Jesus says, Now the hour of my glorification has come. And so we put this together, and John adds to that, the hour of this glorification is... Jesus is going to depart from this world, and he's going to return to the Father. Even that is pregnant with meaning. Because his departure and returning to the Father in this hour is the hour of his glorification. It means his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, his suffering in beating and scourging, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. He's not just, I'm, going, I'm leaving and I'm going home. No, to get to the Father, that ultimate place of glorification, he has to go through the steps of suffering. So the hour is the, the, the hour of his suffering and all that it means, the hour of redemption for us. It's all about love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is an act of love. In short, the completed work of redemption is his submission to the Father and doing the Father's will of redemption. And then it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Who are his own? His own are those whom the Father has given to him. This is a summary statement of what's going to happen in chapters 13 and following He loved his own that were in the world to the very end of his life. His own is a term of endearment. It's a term of relationship. It's a term of ownership. Because he redeems us. And he purchases us. And we become his. He buys us back. And we become his, his people. In John 10, 14, remember he said, I am the good shepherd And I know my own, and my own know me. They're the ones whom the Father has given. These are believers. These are the ones who who, who accept that redemption by faith. And those who are being sanctified. Those whom he loved. And to the extent that he loved them. Notice the the repetition of the word love. He, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. To the uttermost. Perfectly, completely, to maturity, immeasurably. His love is completed in his redemption. And this is what he is doing on this night and the the next day that follows. He loved them and he did not stop loving them and nor will he ever stop loving us. But then it says in verse 2, During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, comma, just stop for a moment there. Well, what is that all about? The devil and Judas 
Or what are we to make of this? Is the, the, the Judas, uh, the devil made him do it? Did he not have a part in this? You know, the old, was it Flip Wilson? The devil made me do it anyway. Um, some of you are way too young for that. But this would be, this is similar to the hardening of Israel. They turned away from the Lord, and the Lord hardened their heart. But this is on a personal basis. Judas, you see, was not a believer. What did we see back when um, Mary uh, used the very costly perfume to, to, to anoint Jesus' feet? And it, and it was Judas who objected because he was greedy. And he was motivated by money because he wasn't following Jesus Yes, he was a disciple, but he was not. He was a false disciple. He was driven by something other than love and devotion. Therefore, the course he had chosen and his evil heart were fertile ground for the devil to suggest to him that he might betray Jesus. The devil did suggest that, and we're going to see later the devil actually comes into him. And he does the, the worst thing that could happen to this perfect son of God on earth. Does this mean that the devil can put things into our heart? We fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world system out there, it's always throwing darts at you and always, always suggesting many, many things to you, right? Watching TV, news, internet, it, the world is consistently suggesting to you things that you ought to do or ought not to do. And then there's our own flesh. Uh, we don't need the world. We don't need the devil because we, we can handle this on our own very well, can't we? In terms of finding ways to sin. Because we have a propensity toward that. And if we're not guarding our hearts, we will go that way and we will follow sin. And then there's the devil, of course. Of course. Yes, temptations come from these three sources, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The Apostle James in the book of James makes it clear to us, though, that it is our own lusts that carry us away. We are responsible. We can't blame the world. We can't blame the devil. We are the ones who respond. We just listen to the suggestions and we follow. So we need to be careful to guard our hearts. Now, we see with those introductory words that the love of Jesus, this immeasurable, perfect Love is shown in action. It's not just the washing of feet. It's not just about cleanliness. There's much more going on. Verses 3 through 5. And by the way, what, what, uh, if you have in your, in your Bibles, if you see these little asterisks throughout here, um, this section is, is written in what is called the historic, historical present. So even though our, our Bibles... Give it in the past tense. Those who are reading it, they're, they're transported there. And, and Peter is describing it and reliving the scene just as he saw it and was there. And it would go more like this. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and going back to God, he gets up from supper. He lays aside his garments and then he takes a towel. Then he girds himself. Then he pours water into the basin and he begins to wash the disciples' feet and he wipes it with the towel with which he is girded. Peter describes it that way in the present tense so we can see the scene in our minds. Knowing these things, what was it that Jesus knew? He knew that he was returning to the Father and his hour of suffering had come upon him. He knew what was ahead. He knew that satanic opposition was working through the betrayal of one of his disciples. And he knew that the Father was working out his will perfectly. Because he said he knew that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. And God had given all things into his hands. He knew who he was. He never lost sight of it. Even the betrayal was part of God's plan. And he knew that. And yet, what did he do? He washes their feet. Knowing that he's the Messiah. Knowing that he's the Son of God. Knowing that he's going to conquer sin and death and Satan. And he will be seated at the right hand of the Father. And yet, he stoops down and washes the feet of the disciples. He had full awareness and clarity 
of everything that was happening. His eyes were wide open. There was no confusion. He wasn't stumbling in darkness. He faced the hour with full knowledge, and he did so willingly. And what he does in washing the feet of his disciples is parallel to all of the incarnation, every bit of it, all of the incarnation. A.T. Robertson says this, Jesus is fully conscious of his deity and messianic dignity when he performs this humble act. He knows. He hasn't lost sight of anything. And yet it's a picture of the incarnation. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Um. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, a bondservant, a slave. And being made in the likeness of man, he took on human flesh. God did. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? For this reason, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above all names that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what him kneeling and washing their feet, it pictures his whole purpose for coming. This is what he was born to do. And the washing of their feet is a demonstration of that. What do we learn from this? A number of things. We, too, are to love. We are to love one another as Jesus loved us. And he's going to say a lot more about this. We're going to come back to this, uh, about Jesus' instructions about, about love. But he, he gives us some examples now. We are to love in the same way, in spite of adversity. We can expect that when you follow God's will and you choose to love as Jesus loved, it's not going to be easy, right? Is it, is it just, if it would be easy, it would be easy. We do it all the time. When we do God's will, there will always be adversity. And our love is weak and flimsy and inconsistent, but his love is consistent and complete and perfect. Therefore, we need to depend upon him to love through us. God has given us a mission, like he gave the mission to Jesus, and with it he gave him everything to complete the mission, and he gives us everything that we do to complete the mission. The commandment to love one another, even as he has loved, he has given us the Holy Spirit and all that we need to fulfill that. We are to love one another as Jesus loved us in spite of adversity and in spite of adversaries. We can expect satanic opposition. Any time you do the will of God, the enemy will oppose you, will oppose us. The devil will always oppose the plans of God. The world, the flesh, and the devil will introduce temptations into our hearts and minds. It's just will we respond to them? Our struggle, we need to remember, is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. But there is a spiritual battle raging. But we do understand that God will use, or that the enemy will use people to oppose us. So there will be satanic opposition and there will be personal opposition as well. When we choose to love as Jesus has loved. So, again, Jesus has a lot more to say about love in chapters 13 through 17. But before he says more, in fact, he hasn't said anything yet, if you noticed. Before he says anything, he does this. He washes their feet. So the washing of the disciples' feet was an act of, of perfect love. Secondly, the washing of the disciples' feet is a symbol. It was a symbol of cleansing from sin. It's more than just an object lesson. We'll get to that. But it's a symbol of cleansing from sin. Now, what we see in verses 6 through 11 is this interchange between Peter and Jesus. And Peter speaks and Jesus speaks. Peter speaks and Jesus speaks. Peter speaks and Jesus speaks three times. And um, helps us to understand what is going on. So verses 6 and 7, we have the first interchange. He came to Peter 
And apparently there have been no words spoken. He, he takes off his robe. He girds himself. He pours water in the basin. He goes around from disciple to disciple. And it's quiet. And they're looking at each other wondering what on earth is going on. And he comes to Peter. And, he, and Peter said, Lord, do you wash my feet? Lord, do you wash my feet? Can't be. Peter's question is one of amazement. Why would you wash my feet? Not a question per se. It's more of a statement. You can't do this. This was more than, this was not ceremonial washing, you know, just dipping a few, you know, water things and splattering, you know, just as a ceremony. They had dirty feet. This was real dirt. It was not just ceremonial, nor was it just about cleanliness. It was practical. It had to do with dirty feet. It was menial work for menial people. It was meant for household slaves. Household slaves would wash the the feet of visitors who came in. There would be a basin of water. Now, not every house had household slaves, so probably the lowest person in the family on the pecking order would be the one to would take uh, the, the opportunity to do that and would have the re, the responsibility. But people walked in sandals on dirty, dusty roads, and even in the case of walking on paved services, and there were some. Who know? You know what's out there? You know sheep and oxen and donkeys and. You know, the sewage doesn't run properly, and there are no socks in those Birkenstocks. (laughs) Therefore, their feet would have been the easiest soiled part of their body. And Jesus, Son of God, God incarnate, dresses up like a slave and washes their feet. And Peter, what? He knows he's the Messiah. On one hand, you can understand his surprise. On one hand, you can understand that he is mystified as what's going on. I think they're all confused at this point. This isn't the way it's done, right? Jesus' answer, though, basically, relax. That's what he says. Basically, he says, relax. What I do, you do not realize now, but later on you're going to. So just relax and let me do what I'm doing. Just humor me here, Peter. Let me do what I'm doing. He's going to explain a little bit of what's going on. But in all of the teaching of Jesus, it isn't until after his crucifixion, resurrection, and and the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit coming, that the light goes on for these people, and they, they look back on these instances, and they really understand what he was saying and what he was doing. Peter, just hold your horses. And his answer is one. uh, It describes that the disciples' experience was one that was going to be repeated over and over again in this book. In chapters 13 through 17, they're going to say, uh, you know, Peter doesn't understand. Uh, Thomas is going to say, what, where are you going? And, And Philip is going to say, what, we don't understand what you're saying. And it's going to be repeated. When you read 13 through 17, you'll see these times. But he is going to eventually let them know what he's talking about. The full meaning of his teachings would become known after the resurrection. Right now, he says, Peter, hold your horses. One day you'll understand. Peter was quick to speak and slow to understand, right? What does James say? Be quick to hear and slow to speak. And he should have just kept his mouth shut. Um, and he takes one foot out and puts the other foot in, trying to wash them himself. I'm not sure what he's doing with those feet. But anyway, he doesn't really understand. We are admonished to be uh, slow, to un- to, slow to understand, quick to, quick to speak, quick to hear, rather, and slow to speak. So Peter says then, verse 8, verse 8 is the second exchange. Never, he doubles down. Never, not ever. It's a very strong uh, statement. Never, not ever, shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now, it's changing from an act of cleanliness. We're, we're, We're starting to see, and Jesus is saying by his words, this is symbolic, Peter. Bear with me here. But Peter says, I won't have it. It's just not right. I won't allow you to demean yourself. 
You're too important. You're too high. You are the exalted one. His understanding of Jesus as the Messiah, he's got that. But his expectations of what the Messiah will be and what the Messiah will do are wrong. He still believes that he's going to be a political Messiah. That he's going to reform Judaism. That he's going to be the king of the Jews. And and he's going to free them from Roman rule. And he couldn't be more wrong. He doesn't know what's coming next. And so he, he thinking that he's the, he is the king of the Jews, you can't have a king doing this. You can't have the president of the United States washing dishes in your house. That won't do. Jesus' answer is this. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. His words convey to Peter that this act of washing was not just an act of hygiene. It was a symbolic gesture of a person being cleansed. The washing of their feet symbolizes his coming death and what it will accomplish. It unites us to him. We are his. He is ours. We participate in in all the blessings of heaven. When we are washed, we, we are part of him and he is part of us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places In Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Blessed with every spiritual blessing, we participate in all the messianic promises, the kingdom promises, the promises that are spiritual right now of all the heavenlies. They are ours in abundance and completely because we have been washed. This only happens through the cleansing that comes to us in Jesus. Peter just does not understand the role of the Messiah yet. It just doesn't get it. So in verses 10 and 11, you have the, the third statement by Peter. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. I think I get what you're saying here. No, you don't. <laughs> Yeah, I think what I do. No, you don't. Peter wants to make sure that it's sufficient, that he's going to get enough. He doesn't want to miss out on any of those messianic blessings. Wash my hands and my feet. Please wash me sufficiently because I want to be part of what you're talking about. On one level, you have to understand he's willing to do what Jesus says. On the other level, he just doesn't understand. Spiritual ignorance begets ignorance, doesn't it? Spiritual error begets more error. And what, what, what Peter does at this point, he goes from one extreme to the other. Don't touch my feet. Wash my hands and my feet and my, and my head. One extreme to the other. You just can't please this guy. Spiritual ignorance begets more. But Jesus said to him, here's the explanation. He who has bathed. Needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. He's using the illustration. If you guys came to the, the feast, you came to Passover, you took a bath before you came, you walked along the streets, your feet got dirty, you only need to wash your feet, you're already clean. Meaning, in a spiritual sense, his cleansing is sufficient. You don't need any more. There isn't any more to get. His is enough. He who has bathed and he's only washed his feet but is completely clean. And then he says, and you are clean. The word you there is a plural pronoun. He said you to the disciples. You are clean, but not all of you. There is one who is not. Verse 11, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So at this point in the ministry of Jesus, the disciples are already clean. They're saved. Okay, yeah, he's going to die for sins, and those who come after will believe in that. But there were believers that were already cleansed of their sin by virtue of the coming sacrifice, and they were cleansed. But his coming work of redemption is a picture, uh, rather his washing of the feet is a picture of that work of redemption, so that we would have cleansing as well. And so he includes Judas here, even though he knows he's not clean. Isn't that interesting? He knows Jesus, Judas is not clean, and he washes his feet anyway. 
Anyway, Jesus says it's not necessary for me to wash anymore because you are clean. Peter has missed the symbolism and he has misunderstanding what Jesus has been doing all along down there on his knees. He's already clean. He's already washed. So are the other disciples and so are you if you are a believer in Christ. His work of cleansing and fellowship excludes those who reject him. In this case, it's Judas. Now, what do we learn from this? The work of redemption both cleanses us from sin and unites us with Christ. Cannot have one without the other. Unless Jesus takes away your sin, you have no part in him. You have no blessings. You have no future. You have no home. You have nothing. But this world and all the world has to offer and all that comes after it, which is the grave and judgment. In 1 Corinthians 6, after Paul listing this long, dirty laundry list of sins, he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but by his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. That's how our cleansing comes about. And his washing the feet of his disciples symbolizes that coming washing that we partook of by faith. The work of Messiah is redemption. And it is accomplished by the humble service of Christ, his incarnation, becoming a man, his death, his resurrection, all of that symbolized in the washing of his disciples' feet. It foreshadows the cross. And it is our our only hope for our own fellowship and cleansing. I've been reading in tandem right now Leviticus and Hebrews, what are two great books to read at the same time, because Leviticus talks about all the washings and the washings and the sacrifices over and over and over again. You shall be holy for I am holy. You've got to do it this way. You can't do it this way. You've got to do it this way. And then Hebrews comes along and says, that didn't accomplish anything. But show you that you needed him. Because once for all, the, the priests, they had to make a sacrifice for their own sin before they could even make a sacrifice for the sins of others. But Jesus, the perfect one, goes into the holy place and once for all cleanses us. That's what he's done. And our initial cleansing from sin is never repeated. It happens once. You don't have to go back and do it over and over again. But, second of all, though clean in Christ... We are still in need of daily cleansing from daily sin. Are we not? Yes, we are. Even though we are cleansed, we still do unclean things, right? I do. How about you? Everybody raise your hand. We all do, yes. (laughs) We're cleansed, but we still do unclean things. Therefore, we are all in need of daily grace for daily cleansing from daily sin, because you sin and I sin, we all sin daily. We do. Daily. Just need to pay attention. That means we, we need to seek daily cleansing by daily saying, God, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thought and see if there is any hurtful, imperfect, unclean way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. I confess it as sin and he forgives. We need that daily cleansing and he gives it to us. We are sanctified. We have been cleansed. We are being sanctified. The blood of Christ continually cleanses us, First John 1 tells us. And one day we will be ultimately sanctified. We will be free of this flesh. And we will be completely made whole in Christ. We look forward to that day. So the washing of the disciples' feet was an act of perfect love. The washing of the disciples' feet was a symbol of cleansing from sin. 
And lastly, we see in verses 12 through 17, the cleansing, the washing of the disciples' feet was an example to humble service. Not an example of humble service, but an example to humble service that we do this thing. Jesus gives the meaning of what he's done. So when he had washed their feet, verse 12, taken his garments, reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? So he's done washing. He um, puts his clothes back on, sits back down where he started, looks around, he says, so, do you know what I just did? Um, So far, there hasn't been any dialogue other than with, with Peter. And this is a teaching moment. It's one thing to give an example to say some things are better caught than taught. This is, he does both here. Sometimes you have to do both and. One thing to give an example, it's another to explain that example. And he does not want them to misunderstand. And later on, they're going to understand even more. But he doesn't leave them to guess. He says in verses 13 through 15, You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You call me teacher, rabbi. He's the rabbi, they're the students. He's the leader, they're the disciples. Rabbi is the one who leads. They're not the, they're not the teacher, he's the teacher. He calls them, they call him Lord. Throughout the New Testament, the, Lord, the word Lord, kurios, is, uh, Jesus, when it's used of Jesus, it uh, demonstrates that he is equal. It's the same name of Yahweh in the Old Testament. He is the eternal God. He is the Lord. He is deity. I am the teacher. I am deity. If I then, God, and the teacher of all, wash your feet, the least you can do is wash the feet of one another. What an example. He is the exalted Lord of the universe, and he condescended to wash the dirty feet of human beings and to become one of them, that we would represent one, recognize one another as equals, equal slaves, equal servants, equal those who are sent, and we wash one another's feet. And this combination of teacher and Lord just heightens the and underscores the, the high position of Jesus and compared to their lowliness and how far it was for him to go from there to there. The long, 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 long ways. For me to go from here to there is no no distance at all, right? But he's the example. I gave you an example that you should also do as I did. Not what I did. Some people say, see in this that we are to add to baptism and the Lord's Supper, the washing of uh, one another's feet, foot washing as another ordinance. And some churches do that. And uh, we don't denigrate that. We just don't see that here. He says, do as I did. Because it's the symbolism. It's, it's the example that he's giving. It's not the actual washing. What did it mean? And he says, if then the Lord and teacher wash your feet, you are to do the same. His lesson goes far beyond just washing feet, but his washing of feet symbolizes the humble attitude that results in humble acts, which is a summation of his life, isn't it? It's his whole life. It's a humble servant of others. And he states it plainly that this was given as an example, a pattern for us to follow. Verse 16, truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. I'm the master, I'm the teacher, you're the, you're the students. I'm the Lord, you're the ones who are sent. Don't forget that, he said. The idea is that if the master humbles himself this much, so much more should we, his servants, serve one another and be his messengers. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Then verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Yeah, we, we know a lot of stuff, don't we? We know a lot of theology. There's always danger in learning more and more Bible. We need to know, but we also need to do what we know. 
And that's where the blessings come. When we say we know and we don't do it, maybe we don't know it. And Jesus would say elsewhere, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? And his intent there was to demonstrate that some people call him Lord, but they don't really know him. The evidence of cleansing, the evidence of salvation is obedience to what we know. That's found throughout the scriptures. We are not to be merely hearers of the word, but doers. So what do we learn? Jesus is always the supreme example of how we are to live. Always. The ultimate example. You can look up to people. You can have mentors. You can look up to movie stars and sports figures. And you can look at their lives. But the life to pattern after is the life of Jesus Christ for believers. You will never go wrong in doing as Jesus did. You will never go wrong. You might be criticized, you might be ridiculed, but you'll never go wrong in living as he lived. Doing as he did is going to be repeated in 1334, 159, 1510, 1512, 1723, etc. in the chapters we're coming up. He is our example to love. He is our example to obey as he obeyed the Father, etc. And we're to follow that example. We, in short, are to become like Jesus, right? That is what it is about. And he sets the standard for humble servants. Husbands, serving your wives, not having them serve you. Wives, serving your husbands, not having him serve you. Both are true, right? We don't exclude one, but we should be falling all over ourselves to serve the other person. It starts with our attitude that we lower ourselves in a sense. And we recognize that others are more important than ourselves. Children serve your parents. Parents serve your children. Elders serve the congregation. Congregations serve the elders. Deacons serve the congregation. Congregations serve the deacons whether it's men's ministries, women's ministries, ushers, greeters, nursery, teachers, whatever it may be, we recognize that our others are more important than ourselves and we humbly serve them. By the way, this is not talking about unbelievers. This is all the church. This is all one another stuff. Yes, we can love our enemies and those out in the world, but he is focusing on his disciples right now. This is... This is the ethic by which we are to live in the church. An attitude of humility and a a service to one another that is demonstrated by that humility. Second of all, there is great dignity in indignity. Indignity is self-abasement. Because the greatest thing we can become is like Christ. Isn't that the greatest you can become? So what did he do? He lowered himself. He embraced indignity. He embraced condescension and self-abasement. The only way to become him is not by pride, but by humble service. It's the only way to become like him. We never achieve greatness by our own hands, but only by his. By his. And next, there is a certain purity to getting your hands dirty. Jesus literally got his hands dirty. It wasn't just ceremonial. No, he did. Jesus was willing to get his hands dirty by serving others, and so should we. Literally getting our hands dirty, that that may mean literal, but it may mean um, doing things that are in sometimes... Um, difficult, costly, um, abhorrent for the sake of others. He was the most holy and pure person who ever lived, and yet for love and redemption he rolled up his sleeves and he came into close, close contact with his disciples who were in human flesh. We are to become like Jesus. Like Jesus. He's our example. There is great dignity and indignity. There is a certain purity to getting our hands dirty. And we are blessed by obedience. We don't need to say any more than that. 
But we are blessed by obedience when we obey him. So the conclusion is this. The washing of the disciples' feet was an act of perfect love. So love others to the extent that Jesus loved you. It was a symbol of cleansing from sin. I encourage you to accept by faith the cleansing that is found only in Christ because there is no other way. It was also an example to humble service, practical, not theoretical. Humbly serve one another as Jesus has done. The Lord's table beautifully pictures this. I want you to take out your communion cups and prepare the bread and the cup. If you are a believer in Christ, we invite you to the table. If you are not, we invite you to to come to the table by faith in him. In Greek mythology, Narcissus was a handsome young man, so handsome he had uh, many female suitors, but he eschewed them all. One day he was looking at a pool of water and he saw his own reflection, and who did he fall in love with? Himself. Fell in love with himself. He fell in love with himself so that he um, eventually killed himself because there was no way of fulfilling that love. And so where he died sprang up the, the flower Narcissus. We use the word today, narcissism, of uh, people that are self-centered, people who are in love with themselves. Um, we have made it pathological. We have made it clinical. It is a diagnosis. No, it's not. It's sin. And it is the spirit of the age that we serve ourselves. The older I get, and I understand what the flesh is, every time I sin, it's about what? It's about me. It's about me serving myself. Jesus is the antithesis of Narcissus who died for himself. Jesus died for us. Jesus died that you would be cleansed. Jesus died that you would become like him, selfless. Humble, yet fulfilled in that love, not despairing. We thank you for this bread, O God, that demonstrates that Jesus condescended from heaven to become a man and took on human flesh that was abused and broken for us. We drink this cup for it represents the fact that he gave his very lifeblood in our place to cleanse us. He loved us completely. He cleansed us. And all of this is an example of his service to us. We take this this morning, remembering and seeking anew to become like him. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And God's people said, we're going to have the worship team come up and they're going to lead us in a couple of verses of our last song. And I hope we will all go out and, and live the life that Christ has given us the wherewithal to do.